Hello everyone. So here we are, episode seven of The New Romantics, with me, Will Eaves, and my esteemed and much-loved friend, <laughs> Professor Sophie Scott, director of the Institute for Cognitive Neuroscience. This podcast for new arrivals is about the intersection between neuroscience and literature. We look at a piece of research, piece of neuroscientific psychological research every month, and we also look at a short story or a poem or a speech from a play, and we consider how these two very different things from the two cultures speak to each other across time and across disciplines. And I'm now going to ask Sophie to introduce the journal article, which is a very interesting piece about repressed memory. So this is a, it's a journal article called The Return of the Repressed, The Persistent and Problematic Claims of Long Forgotten Trauma. And what this title is referring to is what was in the 1990s, it was called the, the Memory Wars, and they really were wars. It was bitter at the time. And the war was about, at its heart... Is it possible that something so traumatic could happen to you that you have a memory for it that is completely inaccessible to you? The trauma sort of pushes it, that your brain dealing with the trauma pushes it completely out of accessibility and also that's in therapy, that memory could return. You could mm. access that again. And so you'd hear the phrase of recovered memories. And this was a controversial claim and it was controversial because it was largely an argument that started to appear driven by developments sometimes to do with a sort of groups of parents and children in particular environments. I'm choosing my words carefully. Also, uh, single individuals going in for therapy, but often where the memories that were recovered were of were of sexual trauma and often sort of at the hands of somebody known to the person. So obviously these weren't just uh, horrible memories being recovered, but they were horrible memories being recovered apparently in a context that would sort of blow families apart and things. So it was very, very difficult at establishing whether or not this was actually a memory that was based on anything that had actually happened or was there some mm. other account for that you know this extremely strong emotion that was going on. And around the same time, people started to, like Elizabeth Loftus, one of the authors on this paper, started to argue that one should be careful about the idea that in a very simple and pure way, memories could be encoded yet somehow completely lost to inaccessible, to be so inaccessible because of the traumatic aspects of them and then and then recovered in total in their totality. Because what she had always argued is that, as we've discussed before on the podcast, memories are contain elements of stories that we tell ourselves and those stories can shift and change and the act of recalling a memory can affect what a memory is and that you can in fact by depending on how you ask a question you can make people remember things that have never happened so she said that some of these therapeutic situations were a real risk factor for that um, because you're dealing with report exactly exactly and you know by the nature of these things is very unlikely to be often any kind of other way of establishing its truth and the paper really is picking up on the extent to which anybody ever won this argument. So by the end of the 90s, people started to do things like in law, in certainly in the UK, there is a lot more scepticism around things like, for example, eyewitness testimony, because this idea that memories were very fragile things and we could be 
very bad at recognising someone we've never met before. We're then presented with a lineup of people. So eyewitness testimony, which sounds very powerful, actually is very much prone to these distortions. And that became something that's acknowledged in law courts. However, more generally, did these ideas ever really go away? And this argument is saying, this paper's saying, do you know what? They haven't. Well, there's been rather a kind of a, a sort of psychotherapeutic tactic is involved in the change because what was talked of as repressed memory is now talked of as dissociative amnesia. But it's almost as if that change of emphasis from the subject of the memory wars suddenly becoming something else is itself an instance of a memory being retracked and coming back as something else mm. and yet the same. And I think that's that kind of meta level of interest in this piece is what's really powerful. The way, you know, a discipline or a, a, a clinical function, um, psychologists or psychiatrists or psychothera psychotherapists can, as a consequence of the memory wars, argy-bargy within their discipline, actually take a still live issue and really rename it so that it remains available. And actually the, 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 the source and the, the bone of contention, which is always the verifiability of the memory, has not changed, but the category in which it's based has. Yes. And it's sort of rather shocking that that can happen without going into being treading on too many toes and sort of reviving the whole memory wars thing again. What's really interesting about this piece is the way that very high-functioning groups of people yeah. can uh, take material that's been partially discredited or certainly open to a lot of question and simply talk about it in a new way. Yes. As if nothing has really changed. So one of the things that was quite striking about the, the use of the term dissociative amnesia was I, I went to just check what does what do we mean by dissociative in this in this context because it's doing a lot of heavy lifting yeah in in saying that this is not the same as amnesia and amnesia is of course to be absolutely clear normally something that's associated with damage to the brain and there's an NHS webpage about dissociative conditions and they include things like dissociative personality disorder you know multiple personality disorder which I thought was you know, largely not taken, shall we say, completely seriously in the psychiatric professions. And I did think that it says, that, you know, can dissociative disorders, they can make you um, have illnesses that aren't real or, you know, or are not arising from problems associated with the brain. You have a paralysis in the limb and, and that's actually a dissociative disorder. And I thought, isn't that just, the, that's what hysterical disorders were. That's what Freud wrote about. It's just, it's literally just a different word. Yeah. For the same thing. We are basically predicating the precise same mechanism that your profound psychological distress can have these effects on the body. And I'm not saying that can't happen, but I don't know what exactly, as you say, the kind of the reintroduction of this different terminology does seem to be something of a sleight of hand to... Well, it seems also as if there's, a, there's, there's possibly a number of people who don't want to break ranks and say that that is indeed what's happened. Yes. Um, I mean, I think that the... The very the interesting thing that comes also comes out of the of the article very powerfully is this contest between a kind of pathology, as you say, retrieved memory to do with damaged personality as a consequence of trauma, and the normal operation of forgetting. 
mm. and retrieval and what it is to have latent memory and experiences. And I think that that's, um, that's in a way the most alarming thing about the article. It's, it's not suggesting, it's very careful not to suggest that there aren't very good grounds for believing that people who have suffered terrible traumas then have an unusual relationship with recall and retrieval in later life. Mm. That seems to be perfectly plausible. But that is encompassable. You can encompass that within the operations of normal cognitive function. It's absolutely. And one of the one of the arguments about trauma is that a, quite a normal way for your brain to deal with trauma, for your mind to deal with trauma, is to try and suppress those memories to not. So there was there was evidence that if you took people immediately after a very distressing episode and you gave them psychotherapy immediately and counselling and you got them to talk about what happened, they had worse outcomes yeah. than if you let them just go off and deal with it and normally the way that people deal with these things and it you know it can be awful but you've it can be a way of managing those unpleasant memories and and frequently of actually really trying to not think about them well exactly and of course that is w what that brings up is um, a very profound question about the foundational uses of the psychotherapeutic technique I and mean, there's no getting around that you know is it yes is it is it always beneficial to 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 revisit or retrieve or is one sometimes, sometimes in that process, actually confecting a new account? Mm. And that what we, there's an uneasy slippage between retrieval and well, the unkind way of putting it would be to call it fabrication. But a sort of a more sensitive word would be just creation of narrative. Because that's it's completely normal. It's what brains do. Mm. We can't remember things well if we can't fit them to a story. So we will. I mean, literally everybody, every memory, pretty much all of us have, will have elements of things that are what really happened, but also what we know generally happens in the world and also what we would like to happen in the world and how we'd like to be in that world. So it, all of that shapes what memories are. That shapes what's, what we do in our relationship to the memory. But I think where this piece gets very interesting mm. is when it opens out into how other people in professional circumstances view the validity of those memories. You know, what kind yes. of weight they have in a court of law, um, what weight they have in a, you know, in, in, a, in a formal scene of analysis where there's a sort of whole sort of institutional structure behind it. You know, mm. you're paying for your time, you're you know, expecting to have a certain result, you're hoping to have a certain result. And actually the legal stuff only comes in at the end, but the medico-legal implications of all this are really, really interesting. Yes. Because, as you say, there's some anxiety about, you know, if you're a juror, how you treat eyewitness accounts and a judge will very often direct the jury before it retires to consider a verdict as to the sort of weight they should give to that, that testimony. Mm. It becomes doubly difficult when you're dealing with, let's say, a case of dissociative amnesia, where the guidelines in the various kind of legal rubrics surrounding this is, as the authors of this piece have pointed out, full of quite a lot of pseudoscience. Mm. You know, and, 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 and a lot of kind of stuff about brain function and left and right hemispheres and storage of memory, which is simply not true mm. or for which the evidence is very contradictory. Very thin, yeah. And, it, and it's offered as a kind of as a fait accompli. Um, and one does, I mean, that that is very disturbing, isn't it? Because then judges are presumed, who themselves may not be expert in this. Yeah. Well, certainly won't be, are relying upon some kind of expert guidance, which is... Uh, 
hugely open to question. I think so. And I think the... Um I mean, and to be absolutely clear, people in this situation and frequently, I mean, I'm not leaving aside, people couldn't, people could be deliberately trying to come up with a story for some other reason. Most of the time, people genuinely do feel like this happened to them. It, you know, that's that's sure. how they've come to this. Often, almost always in a therapeutic context, but it feels like a real thing. So they want to be believed and people want to believe them. It is, it is very difficult. And I think one of the things that was interesting about this paper was the... the I don't want to say sleight of hand, but the renaming of this dissociative amnesia sort of allowed a whole new set of experimental studies to be done that's looking at how these mechanisms could work without really having to come to grips with the fact that the the work back in the 90s was fairly unambiguous in the fact that you can, people can develop memories that are not based on truth. Mm. You can, but how you ask people questions can influence what they think happened to them. And it's actually frighteningly easy to do that. Um, it's a bit like a David Mamet play, though, isn't it? Because you know, it's really it's saying that the memory wars themselves were traumatic. <laughs> yes, I think it's an element of that. They really were, though. They really, really were. At the the, the British Psychological Society, I can remember um, everyone starting to have to get their act together was start became about because of the illegal implications. And I can remember someone doing a talk. They were almost screaming at us all, you know. We've just got to get this sorted out. We, we things bad things are happening. I may have misremembered that story, of course, but it's um, it it was really really stressful. Partly because of the you know the extreme distress being genuinely experienced by people, and of course the effects it was having on families meant that there was there was real emotional trauma to be dealt with somehow, and you were questioning the validity of what people felt their lived experience was resting on, and. That's always going to be a problem. That's never going to be an easy thing to it encounter. Is it, it is hard, and, I, and I've got enormous sympathy for that. But, but I, I, in a way, there's something. There's, there's almost a kind of statistical innumeracy behind this, which is, you know, really at the heart of this. It seems to me is the fact that a whole range of unlikely and perhaps, you know, terrible things may have happened or have happened to all sorts of people. But in each particular individual's case, it's quite unlikely that you can point to a specific thing having happened in precisely the way that you imagine it might have happened. So it's and similarly in the future, you know, it, the problem with astrology and so on is that it's it's perfectly possible that a number of extraordinary coincidences will come mm. about. But one particular coincidence happening to one, very unlikely. Yeah. So it's the sort of over specificity which is a problem. It's not trauma per se. It's this on this particular date and this in this particular situation. I think that's what's yeah. quite hard to get at and to explain without sounding as if you're casting doubt on the whole thing, and I'm not. No, no, no. I mean, I think actually what you're pointing to there is what remains a real problem, whisper it, in my field, is that actually it's still very, very difficult to point at someone who, say, has done something terrible and say, we can tell you why that happened. We, the the people who've been studying the human mind and behaviour for 150 years now, we know what's going on there because we don't. Yeah. We still yeah. don't. And, you know, and it, it, it might not be something terrible. Like, this is why your life is sad. This is why things are hard for you. We can't, we can give us, we can give you a diagnosis. We can give you, show that certain pills will work. We can give you brain areas that are involved. But why that's happened to you 
why things have worked out for you that way. Exactly like you say, you can never take it back to one event. And in fact, we, we struggle even to take it back to a number of different factors. It's hard. Simple question. Do you think it's difficult for professionals, or to use you know the word that's much in evidence at the moment, experts, do you think it's become harder in our current environment for experts to say we don't know? I certainly think in my field, because one of the problems of psychology is we're frequently seen as a pretty soft science. Girls want to do psychology and, you know, it's not... I mean, I've, I can think of a very famous, um, publicly famous uh, physicist who thinks it's just, there's nothing really scientific at all about what you do. And, of course, science is a method. Science is not the stuff you study. You can study history scientifically. So, you know, I'm, I'm not too convinced point, by yeah. that, you know. But I think sometimes we go on our back foot a bit. And we can be unwilling to say, no, we don't know why that happens. We don't know why anybody's straight or anybody's gay. We don't know why anybody is, uh, you know, somebody who feels that their, their their gender is wrong and they should be a different gender. We, we really can't tell you why that is. Big things about people's lives. We haven't even got a clue about in terms of being able to explain. We can give you pointers. We can from factors, but actually we, we can't even say get straight down the line, well, is that all genetic or not? You know, so it's really... It's difficult. I think that's true. And I think it's also the case that the the patient clinician or the patient scientist, subject scientist relationship is quite a special one in this area because in certain particularly psychotherapeutic situations, it does, I'm afraid, shade over into the client provider relationship. Mm-hmm. It, it, it inevitably because people want an outcome. Yeah, you know, they are distressed. And they would like to be, it's not quite right to say less distressed, but they would like some equilibrium. And sometimes people want to be listened to and sometimes people want to be taken seriously. One of the things that can happen in therapy is you don't even necessarily think this is a, I want this to be different. And I had to be absolutely clear, things like cognitive behavioural therapy or just behavioural therapy for some problems can be amazing. We don't know why it's worked, but you're better. So who cares? Um, but a sort of straightforward talking therapy. I've I've heard people say that it helps just to talk, and then for someone to say, "Well, I've listened to you, and this is what it sounds like is important to you." Just that kind of reflection can make things clearer to you. So mm. it doesn't necessarily get you, you know, like a journey from A to B where A is a problem, B is how I have no problem. But you can achieve more clarity and just insight into some things that you might dwell on you're not even realizing you're dwelling on you've yeah, and you really got yourself I, I think to that's certainly true and it certainly speaks to my own experience i mean i've i've had some sort of rather you know, slightly unorthodox therapy and in so far as it's not been very concentrated once every sort of four months but um i found it extremely useful as a conversation in which there's a you know two willing auditors mm. two willing listeners i suppose it becomes just just thinking off the top of my head you know what that raises is the spectre of the situation in which people talk, give evidence, as it were, to someone who may not necessarily be sympathetic or has another agenda. That's yeah. very complex, isn't it? Because you that's partly what you're... De- that's the sort of historical and political context behind this article that I think it's worth mentioning. The, the, you know, in a, in a paranoid political culture, like a sort of quite authoritarian state, just because there's no hard evidence for something doesn't make that evidence of absence of mm. guilt, you know. And you can see the points of connection between the problems around dissociative amnesia and repressed memory and what happens in 
very paranoid, powerful states where whatever you say is evidence for the prosecution. Yes. You know, Robespierre very famously said, give me six lines in any man's handwriting and I'll find something in it thereby to hang him. Yes. Yes, I think that I think that's a fair analogy. And I think without being... If you take a wider view on what was happening in the 90s, there was a great appearance of sort of discussions around child abuse and it appeared a lot in plays and drama and TVs and books and it still appears as a, you know, kind of a, an explanation of things in, in a stories on this, this was the thing that was going on. So I think there was a, there was a wider cultural discussion happening. We were acknowledging this as a thing that happened to people and it was bad but of course, many of the people who it happened to would never stopped complaining about it. They might not have thought about it all the time, but they weren't ever pretending it hadn't happened. But there was there was a sense that there was a thing to be discovered because this thing was often presented as a discovered thing in drama and um, books. So I think that you know, cult therapy doesn't exist in a vacuum. And the, I think that you can see now there was a currency to these ideas that people felt they they would be picking. You know, in all good faith, they would be picking up on signs that could be telling them about something really meaningful. That could be influencing somebody's current state. I mean, the therapist thinking about the person in therapy. You can see strengths and disadvantages of this, because frequently in this current, at that particular point, it, it was possibly over-enthusiastic interpretation that was guiding people towards the reconstruction of things that likely hadn't happened, but which felt very real to them. And that's when therapy's going, you know, arguably in a way that isn't benefiting anybody. Yeah. But I suppose one of the, you know, it's a general, we don't really have in my field, I can talk about cognitive behavioural therapy and behavioural therapy. Behavioural therapy is purely based on sort of Pavlovian, Skinnerian learning theory. It works. I could take any spider phobic and make them not spider phobic with it. That will work. Cognitive therapy is applying similar principles really to change, you know, saying often how we think that influences how we feel so if we can change how we think that's going to influence how we feel and it can be not for everybody but it can be really really successful and then there's the wider world of talking therapies and actually within that you everybody wants to be the psychotherapists but there are many different schools and many different flavors and we still don't really have incredibly tight regulation on who gets to be it yeah so yeah. again i think that's part of what sort of feeds in some of it was very you know some psychological therapies are incredibly precise on th- based on theory and others are much more flexible and can you know sort of but maybe more more open to people incorporating stuff that you know that that, that, that is around us in the world Can I ask you, Sophie, about one other thing um, that comes up at the end or towards the end of this paper, which I think is very interesting, which is a short consideration by the authors whom we should probably mention at this point. It's Henry Otgar et al. And the et al. are Mark Howe, Lawrence Patihis, Harald Merkelbach, Stephen J. Lynn, Scott Lillianfeld and Elizabeth Loftus. And the thing that comes up at the end is correction of memory and correction of event. Hmm. Um, if there's such a thing as directed forgetting, there can be such a thing as sort of, you know, redirected retrieval of memory. So what they're alluding to there is the fact that if you, if someone says they remember things in a certain way 
and some very good empirical evidence is adduced to the contrary. The sort of folk view of this is that people are very unwilling to change their point of view. We, we, you know, we hear that a lot about Brexit at the moment, that you know, once you believe in a certain thing, it becomes a sort of almost a faith-based thing. But actually, the studies that have been done suggest that if you, if you take people individually, I think they're suggesting, and you mm. produce good evidence to the contrary, a sizable, if not a majority, a sizable number of people will... will revisit their beliefs. Yeah. The question is, does that happen if you have more than one person at a time? And actually, if if you're dealing with a group of people, uh, is it harder to get people to revisit beliefs that may not have much evidence behind them? I think it can be, and you see it happening in... um, I'm trying to... there, there, There are a lot of examples of things that are true culturally but actually when you start to unpack them that's not what goes on in the world but it's and it's really really hard to turn that around so always, what's a really good one you will still encounter people who think we only use 10 percent of our brains because it's there's an accessibility to that there's an attraction to that idea yeah there's all this other stuff we could do with it and you've heard it a lot and it, it, it's been if you've heard it a lot it feels like well a lot of people must think it it's out there a lot it's a common belief and these these things they're very, very hard to turn round, partly because you have this sense of it being shared. Yeah. So a conversation, it doesn't free you up of that. You could still have somebody with, you know, like I say, a, a strong belief they know many people share that this gives them strength in that belief. But there's slightly more even-handedness in how information can flow in a conversation. If you're trying to broadcast information, I, you know, I mean, personally... I was just irritated every single time I saw a government advert saying, let's get ready for Brexit. No, I won't. Uh, You're not going to fool me with your little poster. But that's, you know, maybe there are... But then when I've had discussions, you know, I'm not saying I'm not open to discussions about how things could be better in our relationship with the European Union, but those don't tend to come from somebody showing you an advert, you know? Yeah. I mean, crowd psychology is terribly interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's... It is. uh, uh, There's a lot in it. There's... There's a lot to do with the subsumption of the self and the dissolution of personal responsibility thereby. But actually, I think what's not commonly said is that the reverse can be true, that actually in groups, people can find a way to a more personal belief mm. um, under cover, as it were, of a supportive mechanism. So it's not just the case that people in groups and crowds are sort of you know brainwashing each other and 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 and, and becoming subject to a sort of Orwellian groupthink. Yeah, it can also be uh, quite effectual in allowing people to, as it were, develop quietly a view yeah. that is actually at variance with the crowd, while they have the support of a group network or kinship or family or whatever it might be. I think one of the things that's been interesting about Twitter for social media is that you can encounter people who you you might start following because you, they've they've tweeted something funny about the Labour Party or something or you know, um, and then you discover they hold startlingly different beliefs on something else, yeah. say Brexit or feminism or something, and it can be quite shocking. So I thought we agreed. I yeah. thought we were, yeah. but actually, um, it's both sort of interesting and also sort of terrifying to discover how very much more complex other people can be yeah. than we normally give them credit for, and that although you can kind of consume the world as being something that's largely carved up into these, you know, like say different political, you know, or professional 
things that people do actually there is a great deal more complexity to that and people don't fall neatly into niches you don't either what's the critical point at which people feel they belong to a niche or a group and I think it's the point at which there's more than one person in the room. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, so. I really think it's that. It, it's and that also, soon. And kind of um, charisma. So I can I can think of a scientific claim someone made that I really wanted to believe. It sounded great. They, um, I bet I hadn't named them, but it was a, it was to do with being able to listen to speech in no, no, speech in noisy environments, which is a problem as people get older. And they were claiming that, um, oh, I'm going to say it, they were claiming that there was a, an advance if you'd learnt to play a musical instrument, you, you were somehow protected from these changes as you get older. And who wouldn't want that to be true? That's amazing. We should be teaching music in schools if that's true. So, uh, I, and I tried to, you know, I took, I was going to do a brain scanning study on this. I started a brain scanning study on this and then I discovered that I couldn't replicate the behavioural effect. Well, you're alluding to theatre there, aren't you, really? Well, I it mean, was... Because that's, because that's the thing, is people... When will people advance things they secretly believe but would normally be afraid to say in a group? It's when they wear some sort of social mask. Absolutely, and I have to say, if I take it back to... The, when I looked at my results and I went back to the original data, it was there in the original data, but the original data was presented in this amazingly char- charismatic lecture that I went to. This woman did a fantastic talk. She played the electric guitar. It was almost like a... Like delivered with religious passion and verve. It was one of the most engaging talks I've ever been to. So engaging. And I went away with the message that this is a thing worth looking at. And I didn't notice the data she actually showed me in the talk. Showed her effects. Even the effects that she was reporting was so tiny as to be meaningless. And effectively noise. So that that was really quite sobering to me. Because I thought, you know what? I wanted that to be true. Mm. I was interested in studying it. And I wanted to find out about the mechanisms. But I also wanted that to be true. Mm. And yeah. I ended up with a paper I'm very proud of. Where we basically had to say, no, we can't find it. And the debate has rumbled on. One paper doesn't solve the issue. There's still, you know, there's there's still a lot of interest in this topic. But if I'm honest with myself, I wanted it to be true, and I went to a brilliant talk, and I wanted to be part of that brilliance. Fascinating, and I it gives us a good. Um, the business of wanting something to be so uh, and being inspired and also being fixated, mm. I think, upon a sort of a particular stimulus is a good point of entry for the second thing we want to look at, which is a short story by Julio Corteza, who's a marvellous uh, Argentine writer who died in 1984, wrote a few novels, probably best known, I think, for his short stories. There's a marvellous collection in English called Blow Up and Other Stories. Blow Up was the basis for the Antonioni film. But the story I've chosen from that collection is a story about fascination and concentration and change. I think it's probably a little bit too glib to say it's about memory. It's not. It's about the relation of self to the thing you get interested in. It's called axolotl. And to give you an idea of what it's about, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. There was a time when I thought a great deal about the axolotls. I went to see them in the aquarium at the Jardin des Plantes and stayed for hours watching them, observing their immobility, their faint movements. Now... I am an axolotl. 
<laughs> it's it's a very very brilliantly spun out four thousand word story about a man who gets right up close to these amphibians, which, as Corteza interestingly tells us, are the the larval stage of uh, a salamander species. I didn't know that actually. I thought they were necessarily kind of adults, but no, they're the larval stage, and how he becomes completely entranced by the golden eyes mm. the tiny human-like digits on the on the feet the four feet which you can't help but think of as hands and feet and how at a marvelously engineered moment in the story which is done over a paragraph break he's looking from one side of the glass at the axolotl and then suddenly, without changing the voice mm. or the persona at all, it's still first person, you see the man draw away from the glass and you realise by extension that you are on the inside of the tank yeah. and that the speaker is now an axolotl. It's a fantastic, as uh, Woody Allen would probably say, it's, it's a sort of, you know, um, it, it's a comic essay in the in the transference of temperament to bring it back to psychoanalysis mm. but from from one human to a creature but i think the the thing i love about it and i'd be and i'd really be interested to know what what you feel about this is that so often sto creaturely stories the whole bestiary of stories in which people have written about animals usually to say something about humankind is presupposes some sort of um anthropomorphic interest yeah you know in the creature and that means that you are looking for some sort of illustrative likeness in the behavior well if it's water shipped down you know the rabbits have this kind of sort of caring structure which we could learn a lot from if only we were a bit more yeah like rabbits, it, it doesn't really mean that we want to be like rabbits. It means that we want to be more rabbit-like humans. And what's great about this story is that all that is thrown out of the window. Because really what he's saying is, and he says it explicitly at one point, I think my sympathy for these creatures is real precisely because I can think of very little we have in common. Yes. Yeah. And it's the total absence of likeness apart from the little hands and... And the, and the yeah. kind of reaction to being crowded. That yes. seemed to be like a, a, a fear of that being pressed up against and feet in your face and not being able to get away. That seemed... Yes. A, like a commonality. It's not the same, but it, it, that he was, it was like a, that was the, the, the only bit of sympathy, you know, like a... I'm, yes. I'm feeling what that axolotl might feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it was extraordinary. Really extraordinary. I couldn't, I I didn't know where it was going. But as you say, it so sort of matter-of-factly sets it out. And then you don't really notice the switch. No. It doesn't feel like the big thing it should be narratively. No. It's it's as seamless as apparently the movement is across the glass. And it was, um, it was very, very interesting. And it was very, um, <laughs> a scientist speaks to literature, but it was... It, it it felt very kind of um, like visually rich and sort of physically rich in the the, the feelings. I, I I have very very bad visual imagery, but I was getting a very strong sense of the 
axolotls he was looking at yeah. and what that aquarium looked like. And mm. the sort of, it was a very, it, it felt very visual to me. Yeah, I think it is. It, 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 he's, he's a marvellously precise writer at the same time. There are a lot of very interesting bits of backnoting in the language where you realise it's been obvious to us all along, not least in the opening paragraph, that a transformation has already taken place. Yeah. But the writing seeks to somehow mimic the seamless transmission or transference between the two states. Mm. That kind of technical dramatization of a problem in sympathy is quite unusual in literature because normally we get something a bit more literal you know yeah. if, if if it's a sort of if it's a story about some big morphological change in a body then it's it can be told uh, it can be seen or very deliberately not seen and then this means something about the society we live in so yeah. invisible man is a good example of that you know um arbitrary persecution of people who are not as we are who are or who are invisible who we don't normally spot and there are very very good ways of sort of telling that story and they are to do with the sort of clothes people wear and you know how um mobs are animated by a fear of the unseen and, and therefore a fear of the possible. And this does something very, very different, which is it takes an, an absence of strong visual cues about shocking change. Mm. It just leaves you with stillness and the fact of people being different. And the axolotl is a person who happens to be an axolotl. That's an interesting sort of part of it. Yeah. And says, nevertheless, these two things have some claim both to be, yeah, to embody personhood. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think that the twist at the end is not so much the change from the human to the axolotl. It's that it's that extraordinary moment when the axolotl is left on its own again. Yes, the man isn't going to come back. The man walks away yeah. and he isn't going to come back. That was extraordinary. That I'm was still working out what that means, actually. It's a, it's a, very, uh, it, it's a very unsettling. It really was, because up till that point, I felt that it was like I was learning something about, or something was being articulated about, real obsession like that kind of consuming nature and I mean literally kind of wanting to possess something completely by because of your interest in it so yeah the contact couldn't be enough some sort of invasion some sort of possession and like a physical level is is essential and not in an unpleasant way but that seemed to be the trajectory that we were on that like, why keep going back and trying to get closer and then suddenly the possessor is gone and or you know the the body of that is just he's come back a few times but he's not coming back anymore and yeah. that was really it is very it is very very peculiar that i think it's it's a, it's a masterstroke it's i mean it does remind me of the you know it, i suppose at the bottom of this is slightly that what is it like to be a bat thing the thomas nagel again you know it's not what is it like for us to be an axolotl but what is it like for an axolotl to be an axolotl yeah. that's why the human disappears but it's not in it's it's we have been told all along 
that there's a strong equivalence, yeah. despite the fact that they look so different. So that isn't done away with. I suppose what's what's unusual about it is that we we often assume that we know what you know a I might be repeating myself here, but we know what a kind of a, a slightly a dog is going through. We we think we have some insight in it because, mm. well, they you know they they're, they're ambulant. They've got you know their faces aren't massively dissimilar. The eyes are looking at us. You know, there's some vocalization. But when you take it down to the level of axolotl, that's not really available to you, is it? So yeah. And yet, and yet, he's saying, and yet. Yeah. That's the point at which it becomes a political allegory, doesn't it? Something which appears to be so taboo and different yeah. is really part of your experience too. Yeah. And is part of your world. And I think that's clearly making a point about, you know, um, dictatorship under Peron and, you know, the excluded, the pariahs of society. Yeah. And But it's done in a very, it's done very delicately. Yes. That's phenomenally delicate. It's extraordinary. So I think yes. we might have come to a... A natural conclusion there, from yes. from repressed memory to the unexpected points of connection between humans and larval salamanders. <laughs> that is the kind of breadth of uh, <laughs> discussion you can expect on this program. I need to get back to the zoo. I think they have yeah. some there. Have we? And next time, I think we're going to look at something to do with music. That's our plan. But anyway, definitely music it is. Well, we've been the Neurobantics, and I've been Willies, and I've been Sophie Scott. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.